0: We want to continue our brief two-part series. We started on Monday dealing with the issue of transgender confusion, and today we want to transition and bring it right home to you. You say, well, really, I don't have that problem. That's not something that I'm struggling with personally in my own life. I'm not a guy who wants to be a girl, or I'm not a girl who wants to be a guy, so what does all of this really have to, to do with me? And that's a really good question, and I hope before our time together today, we will be able to answer that question substantially for you. Now, social construction of reality theory has dramatically changed or shaped the self-defining self of our present culture. There is no doubt about that. We learned that in our first session. The LGBTQIA, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning intersex allies or asexual community. Boy, and I understand now that there are some that have 49 different descriptions, you know, that go out. I'm I'm not going to go any further than that. But that particular community is the natural fruit of this social construction of reality theory that has basically taught us all to define our own selves. Gender used to be a very fixed thing in our culture. It used to be that whatever gender I was born with, people accepted that, and then they moved forward learning to live the best life they could with that particular gender, and that is no longer true. Previous generations lived by the axiom, do your duty. Now, generations X, Y, and Z say, It's radically changed, I must be true to myself. That's what drives the present generation. So to self-identify now is a moral imperative to this generation and it's seen as the height of personal authenticity as well as genuineness. I am not being genuine if I'm not going to be true to myself. I'm not really being authentic if I'm not really being true to myself. And we talked about the fallacies of that kind of thinking and how ultimately, really, it leads to self-destructive behavior. The goal then of the Christian is never to escape the body or to view it as evil. All that God has created is good. 1 Timothy 4.4 4. All that God has created is absolutely good. Nothing's to be changed. If you have a problem with that, then you're going to be sucked right into where the society is today. We said that our goal here is to not change a person to be more heterosexual or accept their birth gender identity. That's not our goal. Our goal as Christians is to present to them the gospel of Jesus Christ because that is the only thing that ultimately changes who we are. That's the only thing that changes our substantive nature. We're born as sinners. We're born as people who are natural rebels against God. And unless that conversion takes place as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then there is not going to be any change in our natures whatsoever. Solipsism means that self is the only true and reliable existent thing. There is no reliable truth external to man. This is what drives this generation of the self-defining self. We said in our last message that binary gender distinctiveness models an even greater spiritual reality of Christ's relationship to his church. Once we destroy that binary gender distinctiveness, then our understanding of Christ's relationship to church, God's relationship to his people is now distorted, warped. Now we no longer understand it. And it's rooted, it's deeply rooted in the distinctiveness of being a male, distinctiveness of being a female, and the relationship of the two together as we're going to see a little bit later today. So this cultural paradigm shift has not only given birth to transgender confusion, it has also turned the God-designed binary sexual relationship into a self-centered quest. Let me ask you a question. There's something unique about your generation. Unique, different, absolutely different. If there was thing, one thing that defines your generation right now, I wonder what you think that would be. I'll tell you what it is. And I'm going to ask you this question in order to identify it. Why is this present generation waiting longer to marry than any other generation in all previous human history? Why is that happening? There are probably multiple answers to that particular question, but I believe one of the most prevailing answers to that is the solipsism of our culture has instilled within every single male or female, whether they're Christian or not, A desperate and deep egocentric worldview that makes it difficult if not impossible to have a meaningful long-term relationship between the sexes because we feel that deep inside it's all about me and when it's all about me I don't want to get into a relationship that's going to demand that it's about you because it's all about me everything that's going on in my life is about me and it's sad because the older this generation gets the longer they remain single they're never ever going to know their grandchildren they're never at all going to know their great-grandchildren one of my greatest joys in life are my grandkids that is second to my wife One of my greatest joys in life. I didn't know how good I was at spoiling until I had grandkids. I'm really good at it. Gifted, if you will. (laughs) I can spoil them so well. This generation's never going to know their grandkids. They're going to marry much later on in life, finally, as a last resort, if I have to. I want to have more fun. Where's that come from? Because everything's egocentric. Everything's egocentric. It's all about me. Now, after this chapel messages, don't go out and just grab somebody and marry them. (laughs) Not saying that. But you understand what I'm saying here. And you know, this is not unanticipated in the Bible. Grab your Bible for a moment. Let's go over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Apostle Paul understands what the last days will be like. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, he says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. The Greek term that's used for difficult there is literally dangerous. Dangerous times, seasons, epochs will come. And then he gives a description of what those difficult times will be like. And if you thought like the Semitic mind, then you have a whole list of things you want to Uh, relate, the Semitic mind would always put the most broadest and general thing that characterizes everything in the list at the top of that particular list. And here he says, what what is it that really is going to make these last days dangerous? First thing on the list, verse two, for men will be lovers of self. First thing on the list, first thing he says is that men will be essentially egocentric. They will be intensely in love with themselves. Now, when I went through university and college training, I was taught that that was a virtue. But here the Apostle Paul teaches that it is a vice. It's not a virtue. In fact, that's one of the things that's going to make the last days so incredibly dangerous. People will be essentially egocentric they will love themselves contemporary psychotherapy and psychology and a good deal of Christian psychology today I mean the cornerstone of the whole system is built upon teaching people to love themselves I remember reading a book by a very prominent Christian psychologist if I were to name his name you'd probably know who he was He wrote a book to women and he said, If I were to give a prescription to all the women in the world, it would be this one thing. And you would think, as a Christian, it would be the gospel. You would think he'd say that. That's not what he says. If I were to give a prescription to all the women in the world, it would be that they learn to love themselves more. Imagine that. Paul says that's the very thing that makes the last days so terrible. People will be essentially egocentric, turned in on themselves. That drives every decision that's made. So this is really critical. And then as a result of that, look at this. Because they love themselves, they'll be lovers of money. Because they love themselves, they'll be boastful. Because they love themselves, they'll be arrogant. Because they love themselves, they'll be revilers. Because they love themselves, they'll be disobedient to parents. Because they love themselves, they'll be ungrateful. They'll be unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Let me ask you a question. Do you want to marry that? I don't. I don't, holding a form of godliness although they have denied its power. Now when we're talking about these and when we're talking about sexual things, the Bible gives us very clear instructions on how we should talk about these things. Take your Bible, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5 and we are interested in verses 3 and 4. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 3 and 4. And notice what Paul says here in dealing and discussing sexual issues. Guidelines are given to us here. Verse 3 says, immorality, but immorality or any kind of impurity. And by the way, the, the word for immorality is porneia, any kind of illicit sexual activity. Or any kind of impurity or greed, and by the way, at the core of all sexual sin is always, according to Scripture throughout from Genesis to Revelation, the core of all sexual sin is greed. That's at the very core of it. So, but immorality and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness in silly talk or coarse joking, this is in reference to sexual things, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. So there's three critical things mentioned here. The first one has to do with there no filthiness. That, that means obscene conduct, thought, or words concerning sexual issues. And the second one, he talks about silly talk, which is funny or loose speech about sexual issues. Or the third thing, he says, or coarse jesting, which is rude joking concerning sexual issues. These things should not be named among God's people. This is not something that we joke about. It's not something that we tell shady stories about. That's not what Christians do when we're talking about Christians sexual things, we're thankful. What are we thankful for? The way that God has created us and the way that God intends us to use our unique binary sexual reality in order to serve Him. So appropriate kind of discussions about sexual things, even when you're talking to the transgender, lesbian, gay, bisexual community need to be words full of wisdom, as Proverbs chapter 6 verses 20 through 23 says, words that edify, as Ephesians 4:29 says, or build others up. It needs to be appropriate type of words, not words that are shaded, Or silly or coarse or obscene none of that should come across the Christians lips so then how is it that we should view ourselves in terms of and even discuss these things in terms of sexuality what should we as Christians from a positive perspective see what that the Bible teaches about this? Well, let's see if we can answer that. What is God's design for your sexuality? What is God's design for your sexuality? Let's take a look just briefly at a few passages in the Old Testament, and then we want to move to the New Testament. Let's go back to Genesis 1, and we'll pick up in verse, well, let's see if we can pick up in verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26 says then God said let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth now you can even see this in English you don't have to know anything about the Hebrew to pick up the fact that there is a play on a singular and plural here play on singular and plural he says let God said let us plural who's us Well, it's not the angels because the angels are not the ones doing creation. Most theologians believe this is the first reference to the triunity of God in all of Scripture. Let us make, that's plural, make man singular in our plural image singular according to our plural likeness singular and let them rule. That's really a critical statement. I wrote a THM thesis, or I didn't write it, I read a THM thesis by a young man who completed his THM, and he did an in-depth study on the idea of image and likeness, and he found out that actually the concept in the Hebrew goes back to really old Chaldean roots of that particular word, and the words image and likeness were the same terminology that was used to refer to an obelisk. Back in ancient times, before people could read and write, only upper echelon rulers and wise men read and write. The general populace didn't do that. When a king would go into a territory and conquer that territory, they would set up an obelisk of stone or sometimes of wood at the crossroads of that territory. So everybody passing through there would see that image and say, oh, that king rules here. All right? That's the idea I see that that stone image I see that likeness and I recognize that and I realize that that particular King rules here is the idea so the conclusion of that THM thesis was the fact that that image and likeness is dramatically tied together with the concept of ruling God now creates man places him on earth distinctively for the purpose of all the heavens and the hosts of heaven to know that God rules here. And then it says, and then let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then verse 27, look at this. Then he created man in his own image. In the image of man, he created him Male and female. So here he creates man with gender distinctiveness in order for man to be a gender complement there. So God in relationship, that is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creates man in relationship with gender distinctiveness, male and female, to rule here. This is a critical thing. And then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This becomes now a cultural mandate here. It doesn't mean that marriage and the male-female relationship's primary purpose is procreation. It doesn't mean that. It does say very specifically in the Hebrew text and even in the English text that procreation is a blessing that's given to man. It's not necessarily the purpose of marriage. It's a blessing. This is really critical. So God made man, male and female, verse 27. God commanded sexual relations, verse 28. And God saw when he had done that, that all of this was not just good, but very good. Now that's unique, because each day of creation he had called the first day what he created good, second day good, third day good, fourth day good, fifth day good, sixth day. What did he say? It's not good that man be alone, Which brings us over to chapter two and verse 18. Look at chapter two and verse 18. Then the Lord God said, "It's not good. It's the first time. In all of creation, God calls something not good. It's not good for man to be alone, which gives us a good clue as to why God created the male-female distinctive relationship was not for procreation, but for companionship. And that's the very thing that solipsism in our culture and the self-defining self attacks at its very core. It's companionship. God intended the male-female relationship to be one of primarily intimate companionship, a person where you are most intimate with, more than you will be with anyone else on the planet. So, God says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. I love the Hebrew terminology. It's the term ezer kenigno. I will make an ezer kenigno for him. I used to call my wife my ezer kenigno. People thought I was cursing at her, but it's really a term of endearment. endearment. There's my azer Conigno. A fitting completer, a suitable helper, a gender compliment. Azer For him. So out of the ground. God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. And now it comes back to it. But for Adam, there was not found an aesirconigno for him. Now, why does he name all the animals and then come back and say there's no... Because this becomes a dramatic illustration for Adam there's Mr. and Mrs. Elephant that comes by. There's Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe that comes by. Mr. and Mrs. Skunk that comes by. All right, and Adam is, and by, that, by the way, this shows you the incredible supreme intelligence, Adam. He has no recording device. God actually parades all the animals on the earth in front of him, and in one day, he's able to name them all, remember all the names, not repeat any of them. Nobody, even the best geniuses of our day, could never, ever do what Adam did on that particular day. He's incredibly His mind is incredibly deep and profound here. He names all the animals, and if he did it the typical Semitic way, he named the animals on the basis of their most common characteristics. So the elephants would be, well, we'll call that the gray, fat, long-nosed animal. And this is the giraffe, big, tall, long-necked animal, little black and white, stinky animal. All right? So that's the typical Semitic names when they, they... capture the most chief characteristic of that particular animal. And so God, the man, give, gives names to them, but for Adam, there was not found a suitable helper. At the end of the day, Adam says, hey, listen, Lord, um, there's Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, Mr. and Mrs. G- Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Skunk, no, Mr. and Mrs. Man. Uh, Adam, on that sixth day of creation, intently felt his aloneness. So God calls, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. I like what John MacArthur says here. Adam goes to sleep single, wakes up married. He took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord fashioned into a woman the rib that he had taken on a man. Verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You shall be called women, woman, because she was taken out a man. So what does he do? By the way, uh, there's only one other time that this same Hebrew phraseology is used, and that's in 2 Samuel 5 1, where they're coronating David as the future king of Israel. The people say, bone of bones, flesh of flesh to David. What are they doing? They're vowing their allegiance to David. So, in this particular verse, what is Adam doing? Adam is vowing his allegiance to Eve bone of bones, flesh of flesh. She shall, I mean, he names her. She shall be called Isha. And the core idea of that word is that she shall be called soft. That's her chief characteristic. I don't know whether he went up and poked her. But whatever, compared to him, she was soft. Guys like soft. And he liked that. She shall be called softy. Because she was taken out of men. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So it's pretty obvious here that sex is for married persons only, that marriage is much more than just sex, because there's much more to the concept of being one flesh than just sex. Oneness in every sense of the term. Oneness in the way in which you view life and you view the world. Oneness in your parenting later on should God bring you children. So sex now becomes a part of God's plan for marriage. But you notice later on in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. Um, The reason why it says that, and literally the Hebrew is man uh, Adam knew his wife, knew his wife, and that's very deliberate Hebrew terminology here because it implies that sex is much more than just a mere biological act. Adam knew his wife. Sexual relationships help us to know the other person. Sexual relationships are a form of intimate sharing between people, which I think this generation has really become almost incapable of doing. Sexual relationships symbolize appreciation, acceptance, approval, regard for. They promote togetherness, unity, mutual trust, companionship. Adam knew his wife is the idea. One of the last things you see, I mean, when marriages get into trouble, these are the very things that happen to go out the window. There's no appreciation, there's no acceptance, there's no approval, there's no regard, there's no closeness and companionship at all, no unity, no mutual trust, all of that is gone. When marriages get into trouble, at the core of those trouble becomes that egocentrism. Proverbs chapter 2, launching forward just a little bit further, Verses sixteen through nineteen. If we had more time, we'd go into this much more detail. But there is very strong warnings against engaging in sexual, um, uh, sinful sexual relationships outside of marriage. Proverbs, in a sense, presents the paradigm that God draws very definitive lines where sexual expression then is made um, with the right orientation. Uh, that is heterosexuality, and within the right context, that is monogamous marriage. And Proverbs chapter 2, verses 16 through 19, Proverbs 5, 15 through 20, Proverbs 6, 20 through 35, Proverbs 7, 1 through 27, all of these are warnings against engaging in sinful sexual relationships. And if you move to Proverbs chapter 5, you may want to Just look at that just for a moment. Proverbs chapter 5. We see that encouragement to participate in godly sexual relationships within the right orientation, that's heterosexuality, within the right context, that's monogamous marriage, is encouraged here. And he talks about the fact that in verse 15, drink water. From your own cistern of fresh water from your own well, should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you, and let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now, what is he doing here? Cistern, well, springs, streams, fountains. What is he doing? Back in ancient times, especially in arid desert areas, sex, the metaphor for sex, was cool water because sex was supposed to be refreshing It was supposed to be refreshing to a person. It was like drinking cool water. But he talks about the fact that even in those desert areas, certain people own certain wells. You wouldn't go and steal somebody else's water. Otherwise, it was under penalty of death. That's how precious water was. So sex here is to be viewed as that which is precious between a properly married man and woman. It's supposed to be something that is refreshing Let them be yours alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. All of a sudden you see that in verses 15 and 18, sexual desire is a natural occurrence. Same verses, sexual desire should be satisfied with one's spouse. Verse 16 and 17, you are to reserve yourself for your spouse. Verse 18, sexual relationships can be continually blessed Verse 19, sexual satisfaction in marriage is a great thing. But then verses 20 through 23, extramarital sexual relationships are sinful. In fact, he goes as far as to say that they're enslaving. Verse 22, and then repeated immorality leads to personal self-destruction. Later on, he talks about that in Proverbs chapter 6. A person who does that kind of thing is... Um, out to destroy himself, it is a means of self-destruction. Now we could also go in the Old Testament, the Song of Solomon. We don't have time to this morning, and go through the Song of Solomon about the husband-wife and how they exchange their expressions of mutual appreciation and admiration with one another. They reflect upon their courtship days, its delights, its difficulties, its dreams all of those things. So, in the Bible, God establishes the real paradigm of the male-female relationship and how sexuality is supposed to be a beautiful expression of that particular binary relationship. Oftentimes, when I have a chance to counsel somebody that's kind of drug into transgenderism. One of the things I love doing is just going back into the Old Testament and building and painting a beautiful picture of what God intended sexuality to be with the way in which they were biologically given. That helps them to get a more biblical perspective. But let's turn to New Testament passages. Real quickly, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. The writer of Hebrews talks about the male-female relationships and talks about the importance of marriage and the significance of the marriage bed. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 talks about the fact marriage is to be held in honor among all. We almost dishonor marriage by the way we put it off. And marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Boy, that's heavy. So we can see that marriage is an honorable state, that God forbids all sexual relationships outside of marriage. Within the context of marriage, sexual relationships are blessed by God. That's really critical. And then we go over to First Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. You can get another picture of this as well. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. That's difficult to translate. A lot of translators kind of stumble over that. I think the best translation here is more literally, acquire one's wife in sanctification and honor because in in our culture today that's not what's done we acquire a wife on the basis of sex appeal, appeal or we acquire a husband on the basis of sex appeal that's not the way that christians acquire their spouse they do it on the basis of sanctification and honor in being with that person am i more sanctified and is christ more honored than with anybody else that's heavy I'm not saying you marry somebody you're not attracted to. I'm not saying that at all. It's just that attraction is not the main thing. It's not the main thing at all. It's sanctification and honor that's the main thing. You acquire your own wife in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who did not know God. So that's really key so a sexual active marital relationships is a means of fulfilling God's will holiness doesn't exclude sexual activity but holiness controls its manifestation within the right orientation that is heterosexuality within the right context that is marriage now why do I say that because you know I'm scared about what's happening in this generation but I'm more scared about what's around the corner I'll be dead and in heaven. You're going to have to be dealing with not, not me. Because what's coming around the corner, and it's not far off, probably the mid-2020s, there is going to come onto the market, and this is going to be worldwide, life-like robots that you can marry. Imagine marrying somebody who's not going to get fat, never gets sick, Always remain young, will be perfectly responsive to you. Well, this solipsis generation will buy those robots in mass. They will buy it. It's not the transgender stuff that really bothers me, it's what is around the corner. And they'll argue, and they use the argument that this is going to end. Sexually transmitted diseases, it won't, it'll actually increase them, I believe, eventually. They also argue that it'll end pedophilia, it won't, because there will be childlike robots that you can buy to have sex with. They'll argue that. And this is just going to increase man's preoccupation. With sex, and man will continue through their solipsism and their self defining self to be further and further alienated from one another. It renders the gender companionship and the issue of aloneness that God talked about from the very beginning acute in our society. Acute. This is sad. And this is not far away. It's around the corner. There are companies all over the world doing everything they can to produce these kind of robots. Well, let's go on. What about God's design for your sexuality? Sexual then expressions, uh, sexual encounters that in any way exploit another person are wrong. No person should selfishly use a partner as an object to gratify his or her lust for pleasure and excitement. Such acts constitute transgressions against and a defrauding of another person. They are contrary to the New Testament command to love your neighbor as yourself. That's really critical. Furthermore, when we put these text together, we realize that in sexual relationships, one's mate must be treated with honor as a holy thing. This would certainly involve a respect for the personhood of that other person and a concern for his or her welfare. I'm not satisfying my sexual drive with you. I'm actually ministering to you. That's why sexual encounters must never be casual. They must They are not mere physical acts. They involve total self, the whole person. God-honoring sexual relationships should take place within the context of a caring, respectful relationship which involves a permanent and total commitment to one another. That's what makes it deeply meaningful. I know my spouse will be faithful to me and I will be faithful to them. So being a Christian then, should add a whole new dimension to your purity. Whole new dimension. All sexual activities in which there is exploitation, where you're using someone else to satisfy your desires, or disrespect for the other person, all of that is sinful. Even if it's within married adults, Sex can be sinful because you're still using the other person for self-centered purposes. You're not ministering to them. So all the sexual activities in which there is exploitation or disrespect for the other person are sinful even if they are performed with one's own mate. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Well, there's so much I want to say, but... Very limited time to say it. First Corinthians chapter six, verses twelve, all the way through chapter seven and verse five. We don't have time to read it, but sometime in your spare time you need to read this and study it carefully. Which basically reveals there's two erroneous views. One is that physical intimacy is casual, that's not true. And the other one, it really has to do with physical intimacy is used to satisfy yourself. That's not true. In fact, you can see that through chapter 6, but drop into chapter 7, where it says in verse 3, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now, why does it say duty? Now, think of it with me for a moment. Why does it say duty? That's so contrary to our thinking in our culture because our mindset is so far away from the biblical mindset here. It's duty not because, okay, I got to go have sex with my wife because it's my duty. It's not that at all. It's that. I have a duty to satisfy her. I have a duty to make sure she is fulfilled. In other words, I'm not in this sexual relationship for me. I'm in it for her. She's in it for me. And those two things complement one another. Sometimes we teach this in premarital counseling. And so a couple goes off on their honeymoon and they come back and they say, and say, how did things go? Well, things went pretty good, pretty good, not too bad. And then they start expressing, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. You know, I tried to really be there for her. I really tried to be there for him, and this kind of thing. But all of a sudden you realize that she's trying to satisfy him the way a woman would be satisfied. He's trying to satisfy her the way a man would be satisfied. And they are like ships passing in the night One of the blessings of marriage is a man learning how to satisfy his wife the way a wife needs to be satisfied and a wife learning how to satisfy a husband the way a husband needs to be satisfied. That's the intimacy and that's the companionship that needs to occur on a deep level in that marital relationship. We're not there in that relationship for ourselves. That's solipsism. That is the self-defining self living for itself. No, we're in that relationship for the partner there's the key. So, sexual encounters can never be regarded as casual. Relations outside of marriage are sinful, and for the Christian, they should be unthinkable. Under normal circumstances, celibacy for married persons isn't an option. Paul only talks about that within the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, only because in verse 26, this was a unique time of present distress. Marriage then involves a commitment to fulfill the sexual desires of the partner. That's really key. That is the married couple's duty. And selfishness is forbidden even in the marital relationship. So, sexual responsibilities then need to be equal and reciprocal. I always get this question in premarital counseling. Well, how often? Uh, I don't know. The answer to that question is, is your spouse fulfilled? Uh, How often are they fulfilled? If they're not fulfilled, then you need to increase the frequency. Under normal circumstances, physical intimacy is to be regular and continuous. Conjugal relations may only be suspended for the following reasons. Verse 5, mutual consent... For the purpose of prayer, how many of people do that? And limited time for a specific reason. Maybe surgery, something like that. Then come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Because once you're used to an intimate relationship on a regular basis, you need to keep that relationship up. If you don't, then Satan sends into the individual husband and wife relationship temptations from other people. So, then discussion about sexual relationships should be open, very honest, between the husband and wife. Sexual relations are not merely for the purpose of procreation. They're intended to be satisfying and pleasurable. God doesn't want us to not enjoy sex. It's just that that's not the primary purpose. Let me suggest to you, if you really have a ministry mindset to your spouse, your enjoyment of that sexuality is now elevated to a brand new level, Because not only do you physically enjoy it, but now you know you're doing something really good for that other person. Brand new level. So, it's not merely for procreation. Intended to be satisfying and pleasurable and frequency is determined, as I said, by the satisfaction principle. We've dealt with a lot of heavy stuff in a short amount of time. But it would be really good for you to go back and study study some of these passages that we've just talked about. Thank you for being a good audience. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We're grateful for all that you do in providing light in this confused world and bringing gender clarity. Why am I created the way I am? Why am I created as a male or female? What is the purpose behind my sexuality? What should happen in the marital relationship? All of that's clearly laid out, and it's a beautiful picture, and it's something that we should attain to. Give us grace to do so, we pray in Christ's name.